I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Maggie O'Farrell, on her new novel, The Marriage Portrait. Maggie O'Farrell is the author of the Sunday Times number one best-selling novel, Hamnet, which was winner of the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2020 and the Waterstones Book of the Year, and was shortlisted for the 2021 Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction. She wrote the number one best-selling memoir, I Am, I Am, I Am, and the novels After You'd Gone, My Lover's Lover, The Distance Between Us, which won a Somerset Mom Award, The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox, The Hand That First Held Mine, which won the 2010 Costa Novel Award, Instructions for a Heatwave, and This Must Be the Place. And today we're going to be talking about Maggie's latest novel, The Marriage Portrait. Maggie, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much for having me, Neil. First of all, how would you describe this novel? Well, in short, I suppose, it's a novel about a young Renaissance duchess who realises that her husband is trying to kill her. I suppose the long answer might be that it was initially inspired by Robert Brown's poem, the dramatic monologue, My Last Duchess. And I was just, I I often reread his dramatic monologues. I think they are just incredible miniature masterpieces. They are just such perfect. You know, in terms of poetry, they're perfect. In terms of characterization, you know, they're a kind of masterclass, really, in lots of different elements of writing. So I do reread them quite a lot. And I was just thinking, a couple of years ago, I was thinking about them, because a couple of them are based on real people, to real painters and artists. And I was just wondering whether the most famous of them, My Last Duchess, was based on real people as well. You know, was the Duke who is telling the representative of his new wife's family that he murdered his wife, his previous wife. You know, he's so assured of what he did that he's he's telling the representative of his new fiancée that, oh, actually, by the way, I had my, my last wife murdered because she annoyed me. And I was just wondering if they were... And, I, you know, it took me um, a little while to uh, Google my way to an answer, and it turns out that, yes, they were based on real people, that he was Alfonso II, Duke of Ferrara, and she had been his 16-year-old bride, Lucrezia. and. I just, I, there's one portrait of Lucrezia in existence that was painted just before she left to start her marriage. And I it was downloading on my phone very, very slowly. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, there's my next novel. I'm going to write her story. You know, it's time she came out from behind Browning's curtain and told a version of her story. 
So as you say, these these are real people, they're real historical characters. Um, yeah. And we'll talk about who those real historical characters were. But then you have mm-hmm. fictionalised in some ways the story. And while we won't give away anything about what actually happens in your version mm-hmm. of the story, a bit later on we'll talk about what we can say about your versions of of some of the characters. But sure. just staying with Browning at the moment. So the book is called The Marriage Portrait, and he talks about mm-hmm a portrait in that poem, My Last Duchess, and you just mentioned that there is a portrait of Lucretia that one can see online, can Google it, and various yeah. versions of it exist. And indeed, on my on my proof copy of the novel, there is a little mm-hmm. version of that, a little tiny version of that portrait. Yeah. But that portrait is not the portrait that Browning talks about and that you fictionalise in this story, is it? No. So that portrait was painted when she was about 15, I think, and it is um, just before she left Florence. So she, so, she, so she was a Medici. She was a Medici daughter. She was the fifth of the 12 children of Cosimo, Grand Duke of Tuscany. And th- this portrait was painted a year before she left for her marriage in Ferrara. And in it, she, yeah, she's 15 years old and she's, uh, she's painted in a black dress against a very dark background. And it's attributed to Bronzino. And it is, it's rather somber portrait. Uh, she's wearing mourning dress um, in deference to the death of her future father-in-law. And it's, you know, I think unusually for Bronzino, her face is, because, uh, you know, he painted the whole family. He painted both her parents. He painted several, I mean, many versions of her mother who was incredibly beautiful. And she's always arrayed in these incredible silks and jewels. And <laughs> but Lucrezia looks very somber. But, but the, the marriage portrait, uh, which, which is a kind of art history term for a portrait that obviously is painted to celebrate your marriage, and it's usually commissioned by uh, the husband or the wife in the union. But, uh, and so uh, in Browning's poem, the Duke has commissioned a portrait of his wife, which he, after he murders her, he keeps behind a curtain and none puts back the curtain except me, as he says in the poem, or thereabouts. To the best of my knowledge and the best of my research, no such marriage portrait of Lucrezia exists or it hasn't come to light. So if anyone knows about it, I'd be really, really keen to be told. <laughs> but as far as I know, it's, uh, it's fictional. So let's talk about the, the family of Cosimo then, of the Medicis. Um, and mm-hmm. confusingly, he's one of a number of Cosimos as well. Um, yeah, so you, <laughs> you've just said it's, um, it's Tuscany, Florence, Italy as we now know it. Mm-hmm. doesn't exist at that point in history. That's in right. It, yeah, this is, this is Italy be- yeah, Italy before it was Italy. So tell us something about that family at this particular time. So Cosimo, uh, Lucrezia's father, he was this kind of young, slight outlier to the Medici throne. And until he ascended to uh, be the ruler of Tuscany, the dynasty was actually in danger of petering out. So he came to, he succeeded to be uh, Duke of Tuscany when he was only 17 and he was, um, he married the, I mean, he actually wanted to make, you know, because most of the people of his class and time would have had an arranged marriage. And he was offered several advantageous hands of different uh, women around Europe. But he said, no, no, I want to, I want to marry this girl who I saw a few years ago. I caught a glimpse of her. She's the Spanish uh, Viceroy's daughter in Naples. And she's the one I want. <laughs> and so unusually for that time, they had a love match. They were completely in love with each other. He was, uh, they were faithful to each other, which certainly uh, was quite unusual, I think, for that, <laughs> for their milieu. And they corresponded. And really unusually, he ceded his rule to Eleonora when he was, uh, during his frequent absences from Tuscany. And the astonishing thing about Eleonora is that not only did she produce 12 live children, 
in sort of about 15 years. So she was basically constantly pregnant for a decade and a half. She was either pregnant or giving birth or recovering from giving birth. But she was also very highly educated and she um, she was incredibly capable. I mean, she, she ruled Tuscany alongside him. So together they formed this incredible, powerful, glamorous dynasty. And they completely they brought stability and prosperity to Tuscany. They were a real power couple. And they also had 12 children, by the way. So Lucretia, who is one of their daughters, who is the protagonist mm. of this story, there's not a, a huge amount known about the real person, but what would her what would her life have been like growing con again, considering these are the nobles, you know, the rich people of Tuscany, mm. and they live in at the time the um I was gonna call it the Ponte Vecchio, that's the bridge. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the Palazzo Vecchio, the people who have been to Florence will immediately know where yeah. they lived. Um, it's it's unmistakable. But the descriptions of her life, one might have been reading a book about the Taliban or something, the way that the the, the, the <laughs> daughters are forced to live. So what would her life have been like? Well, I think, you know, on the one hand, Cosimo demonstrates a certain um, respect for women. You know, I mean, he obviously adored his wife. And like I said, he he allowed her to rule in his absence. And he also, quite unusually, educated his daughters alongside his sons. So Lucrezia and her two older sisters had, you know, the best education that money could buy. Um, they had tutors in Latin and ancient Greek and what we now call the classics and music and painting. You know, so they were highly, highly educated young women. But at the same time, the sons of Cosimo were destined to become rulers and one was going to be a cardinal. They were trained as soldiers and rulers. And the girls were basically bred to make marriage that was politically advantageous for Cosimo and his rule. You know, they were destined to make marriages which, which were essentially political mergers for their family and their dynasty. And there's a kind of there's a sort of difficult dichotomy here because, you know, Lucrezia, on the one hand, had incredible education and this very kind of liberal attitude to bringing her up. But at the same time, she had one destiny, and that was to make a good marriage that could strengthen her father's political and fiscal power. And, you know, they led incredibly sequestered lives. You know, Cosimo um, had several assassination attempts on his life. He had many, many enemies. And you know, there's one, I, I read one account of one particularly horrific assassination attempt. So Cosimo uh, would swim every day in the River Arno, uh, in Florence, and he would dive in at one particular point. And there was one day when his bodyguard, one of his bodyguards, noticed that somebody had buried uh, swords upright in the water, so that if he had dived in in his normal place, he would have been horribly eviscerated by these swords that were sticking up out of the mud. So he never left the Palazzo Vecchio and uh, or the Palazzo Pitti, where they later lived, uh, without wearing chainmail, because he was so terrified of. I mean, he was so certain that he was going to be assassinated. So basically, the, the kids could not leave the palazzo. It was unsafe for them because they could be kidnapped or murdered. Uh, and Cosimo could not afford you know, to lose his, uh, his heirs. So the children spent all their lives um, basically locked up. So it's no kind of coincidence, really, that I <laughs> wrote this novel. You know, the whole writing of this novel for me was bookended by the pandemic. And somehow, for some reason, I've come up with a novel that's about constraint and lack of choice and, and a, very, <laughs> a very narrow life. And children basically in lockdown inside this vast gilded cage of a palazzo. Yeah, that hadn't gone without notice, I must admit, I was going to mention that. <laughs> um, there's a scene in the book where Lucretia encounters a tiger. It's a very powerful scene. So this is also somewhat based in fact. Yes, yeah, so Cosimo kept a menagerie of exotic animals in the basement of the Palazzo Vecchio. And apparently this is one of the reasons why Eleonora insisted that later on they moved across the river to the Palazzo Pitti, which is obviously a lot larger, more space. Actually, in my novel, I keep them in one location. 
But Sir Cosimo did keep exotic animals, uh, lions, gorillas, bears, down in the basement of the palazzo for, I mean, I think they were mostly for, you know, they were sort of a a kind of trophy, really, um, of his prosperity and daring, and also to entertain visitors, unfortunately, because there was a little bit of fighting and a kind of gladiatorial conquest between these animals and, and probably some of his soldiers, I imagine. And actually, yes, there is a scene where, the t- I suppose what I noticed is that in Renaissance art, there are many, many lions. And actually, Florence is filled with lions. It was the Medici kind of emblem, in a sense. Uh, you know, that th- there are lions all, all over the Palazzo Vecchio. I was just imagining what it would have been like to encounter a tiger, having no previous preconception of what a tiger looked like. You know, because if, if I'm taking my kids to a zoo or a safari park and you are in proximity to a tiger, it is the most astonishing, atavistic. Uh, experience because it, it is terrifying but also astonishingly beautiful and so I was just trying to imagine a scene where a small child sees a tiger for the first time and what that must feel like so I, I called the chapter the first tiger in Tuscany. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neo Denny. Today I'm talking to Maggie O'Farrell and we're talking about her new novel, The Marriage Portrait. And Maggie, let's move on to Alfonso then, the real life Alfonso, who is the person that Lucretia is betrothed to. Who was he? So he was the Duke of uh, Ferrara. His father died a year before he brought Lucretia to uh, Ferrara to be his wife. Um, He was initially engaged to Lucretia's older sister, Maria, but Maria unfortunately died and uh, Lucrezia was ushered in as a kind of stand-in bride. And when they actually married, she was 13 years old. 
But the story is that her mother, Eleonora, insisted that she reach maturity, so to speak, until they're, um, they're, before the marriage starts. I really hope that story is true. Uh, and so he went off to France for a couple of years and then he, he came back and brought her to Ferrara. And he is, I mean, he's, a, he's an ambiguous figure in history. There are, there are historians and rumours that say that he did murder Lucrezia and there are also arguments that he didn't. Um, all I will say is that he was married. Uh, he did have three wives. He never had any children, which he must have. It must have been a source of great distress to him, because obviously people in Alfonso's position needed sons. They needed daughters. They, they needed sons particularly to, to hand over their power to. And I think when I began the novel, I I wanted to be quite even-handed, I suppose, with Alfonso. I wanted to, you know, take the idea that maybe he murdered her, but also maybe he didn't, you know. And I wanted to be quite even-handed with him, because I thought, you know, maybe he isn't. Maybe he isn't the man that Robert Browning painted him to be. Maybe he isn't the psychopath that murdered his teenage bride. But then I discovered in the course of my research a fact that was irrefutable that he actually was quite proud of. And that is that when he discovered his sister was having an affair with the guardsman, the head of the guardsman in his castello, he sentenced that the man should be murdered, he should be strangled, and his sister be forced to watch. And as soon as I read that, I found it such so horrifying and such a horrific punishment for both the man and not to mention his sister that in a sense I felt you know well this is this is the man we are dealing with this is the man that this young 15 year old girl was forced to marry in a way that was the moment where I thought actually Alfonso the gloves are off (laughs) I know I see who you are now (laughs) and you know this is the man that I was going to write about that revealed an awful lot to me yeah and indeed that incident is featured in the novel and also He's having his own sort of political problems back at home, back in Ferrara, within his family as well, which that incident with his sister is only a part of. So is this thing that happens in the novel with his mother a historical thing? Yes. So his mother was Renée de France, and she was a Protestant. And in order to marry Ercole, his Alfonso's father, who was then the Duke of Ferrara, she had to convert to Catholicism. But Ercole discovered that she was consorting with Protestants and she was apparently, I don't know if this is true or not, apparently she was taking Protestant mass. And his punishment for this was that he imprisoned her inside the Castello and didn't allow her to see her children. So Alfonso and his brother and his sisters, the three sisters, were not were taken away from their mother, essentially, because she was practicing Protestantism. And shortly after Ercole died, the Pope ordered René de France ordered Alfonso's mother to leave Ferrara to go back to France. So his court was, when Alfonso became Duke, you know, his court was riven with this dissent and his mother was forced to go away. And she actually took Alfonso's sister with her, um, one of his sisters with her, which of course endangers Alfonso's court because (laughs) if the sister produced a child before he did, that child could have claimed his court. So yeah, basically Alfonso had a massive power struggle on his hands when in his first year or so of being the Duke, which of course coincided with his year of marriage with Lucrezia. So um, yeah, I think he was, you know, he would have needed to demonstrate that he was capable of the job. He would have needed to demonstrate that he was ruthless enough to rule the the, uh, the province. And also, most pressingly, he needed an heir really, really urgently, which of course is where Lucrezia came in. So let's talk a little bit about your versions of Lucrezia and Alfonso then. As you just mentioned that the the real Alfonso, you know, potentially a psychopath and Hmm. in the book he to begin with he's incredibly charming like he seems really nice like a real catch for that time you know for that Hmm. era in terms of like I said the the situation that she has grown up in 
the way that her life has been constrained. He seems very different. And indeed, we see that she is a very imaginative child and, and is, you know, prey to sort of flights of fancy. So to begin with in the novel, we're not sure at all whether or not she's right about him, are we? No, exactly. Well, I, you know, I wanted there to be a tension throughout the novel and for it to be uncertain. You know, Lucrezia, I think, needs to get away from her family. She's had this, she's led this life of real constraint. You know, she's been forced to marry this man that was, who was on the verge of marrying her sister. And, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, actually, I should say there's very, very little known about the real Lucrezia. Her parents, uh, Cosimo and Eleonora, wrote to each other quite frequently while they were apart. And, you know, the, the letters are actually very revealing about their domestic life. There's an awful lot about the children's clothes and who's grown out of what and who needs new shoes and, you know, the different tutors and education that they're undergoing. There's actually, but Lucrezia very heartbreakingly makes very little appearance in these letters. She seems to have been slightly overlooked and somewhat underloved, I would say. So I just had this idea that Lucrezia would be, would be looking for love. She'd be looking for somebody to love her. She'd be looking for the attention and the affection that probably she hadn't received, I think, in her upbringing. And so I wanted Alfonso to initially be perhaps, you know, to be seen as potentially the answer to her, to the sort of benign neglect that she'd suffered in the palazzo. But of course, you know, we know because the novel starts with her realising that he's intending to murder her. So we know that, you know, Alfonso is not everything that he seems. There's a, a part in the book where, where they're first married, where before they go to the court at Ferrara, she spends time at a country villa. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's beautiful. And he says to her, do what you like, wander where you like. And suddenly her life changes so much from that being confined to... And not even to the whole. I mean, you mentioned before that they were confined to the um, to the palazzo in mm. Florence, but but they're not even. She's not even allowed to wander the the whole thing. She sneaks around it no. at night, mm-hmm. and then suddenly she's she's just allowed to roam these gardens and can do pretty much what she likes. And it's and it's a real like, eye opener for her. Yeah, I know. Well, I just you know imagined that she that she'd be taken away from this very. Um, tense atmosphere in Florence where there was so much threat to her and then put in this villa in you know in the countryside in Ferrara and you know obviously there would have had guards uh, but the, the idea that she actually could walk around she just had more space and you know I think that would have been an optimistic point in her marriage she might have thought that everything was going to be different you know here she was the so young wife of this very charismatic uh, young ruler and also she had all this space to explore and it was summertime and possibly everything's going to be great <laughs> <laughs> but of course, we know that that's not quite that's not quite the way things have things panned out. I want to talk a bit more about your process of um, of researching the the time mm. period and and the characters, and let's perhaps do that through. There's lots of other characters in the book, like background characters, minor characters. Mm-hmm. Um, to what extent are these people? I mean, obviously, the you know the Medici's were real people, mm-hmm. and I know, for instance, that the um, the two of um, Alfonso's sisters that are in the book were real but have different names mm-hmm. in the story yeah so but in terms sisters of... were called yeah were called lucrezia and maria which is a bit inconvenient yeah, which is which there. is confusing <laughs> yeah I'll alter them in the now, same way there's loads of cosimos <laughs> yeah i can't expect readers to, to, to deal with that and there's a lot of lucretias of course in um in, in this period as well so yeah so tell us about some of the like the other background characters the um like um Alfonso's concierge and perhaps the you know mm-hmm. the painter that that comes to do the portrait um, so the painter is based on a real person he's called um 
Bastianino, who was a court painter of Alfonso. So he, he, he was Alfonso's you know, main portraitist and painter. And he also did many of the decorations uh, inside the, the, the Castello Estense in Ferrara, which is this incredible, vast castle right in the centre of Ferrara city. The idea that he painted Lucrezia's marriage portrait, which, you know, the marriage portrait is made up first by Rob Browning and I, and I uh, <laughs> ran with that. I don't know if he ever painted Lucrezia. I mean, I think if, if Alfonso was going to commission a portrait of Lucrezia, I would imagine that your Bastianino would have been the one that he chose. So he's certainly based on historical fact, but the, the idea of him painting Lucrezia is something that I extrapolated. Alfonso's consigliere, who's called Baldassare, Leonello Baldassare, is fictitious. I made him up. I imagine that Alfonso would have had a consigliere. He would have had a right-hand man. He would have had, you know, obviously an awful lot of courtiers and, and all sorts of people to carry out his uh, wishes and orders. But that, so, yes, yeah, so that character is made up. Certainly Lucrezia, most of the people in the novel are based on historical fact, but there are a few people who I have fictitious. So Lucrezia has a maid that goes with her. She's made up because, of course, no maid would ever really have been recorded in that time when she would have had, you know, maid servants. And certainly uh, Lucrezia's nursemaid, Sophia, was also fictitious. But again, I mean, she, there would have been somebody who looked after the, those, that vast number of children. To finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? So this is the uh, very opening of the novel, A Wild and Lonely Place. Lucrezia is taking her seat at the long dining table, which is polished to a watery gleam and spread with dishes, inverted cups, a woven circlet of fur. Her husband is sitting down, not in his customary place at the opposite end, but next to her, close enough that she could rest her head on his shoulder should she wish. He is unfolding his napkin and straightening a knife and moving the candle towards them both. When it comes to her with a peculiar clarity, as if some coloured glass has been put in front of her eyes, or perhaps removed from them, that he intends to kill her. She is 16 years old, not quite a year into her marriage. They have travelled for most of the day, using what little daylight the season offers, leaving Ferrara at dawn and riding out to what he had told her was a hunting lodge, far in the northwest of the province. But this is no hunting lodge, is what Lucrezia had wanted to say when they reached their destination, a high-walled edifice of dark stone, flanked on one side by dense forest, and on the other by a twisting meander of the Po River. She would have liked to turn in her saddle and ask, why have you brought me here? She said nothing, however allowing her mare to follow him along the path through dripping trees over the arched back bridge and into the courtyard of the strange fortified star-shaped building, which seemed even then to strike her as peculiarly empty of people. The horses have been led away. She has removed her sodden cloak and hat, and he has watched her do this, standing with his back to the blaze in the grate. And now he is gesturing to the country servants in the hall's outer shadows to step forward and place food on their plates, to slice the bread, to pour the wine into their cups, and she is suddenly recalling the words of her sister-in-law, delivered in a hoarse whisper. You will be blamed. Lucrezia's fingers grip the rim of her plate. The certainty that he means her to die is like a presence beside her, as if a dark-feathered bird of prey has alighted on the arm of her chair. This is the reason for their sudden journey to such a wild and lonely place. He has brought her here, to this stone fortress, to murder her. Astonishment yanks her up out of her body, and she almost laughs. She is hovering by the vaulted ceiling, looking down at herself and him, sitting at the table, putting broth and salted bread into their mouths. She sees the way he leans towards her, resting his fingers on the bare skin of her wrist as he says something. She watches herself nodding at him, swallowing a food, speaking some words about their journey here, 
and the interesting scenery through which they passed, as if nothing at all is amiss between them, as if this is a normal dinner after which they will retire to bed. In truth, she thinks, still up by the cold, sweating stone of the hall ceiling, the ride here from court was dull, through fields stark and frozen, the sky so heavy it seemed to droop, exhausted, on the tops of bare trees. Her husband had set the pace at a trot, mile after mile of jolting up and down in the saddle, her back aching, her legs rubbed raw by wet stockings. Even inside squirrel-lined gloves, her fingers clutching the reins had been rigid with cold, and the horse's mane was soon cast in ice. Her husband had ridden ahead, with two guards behind. As the city had given way to countryside, Lucrezia had wanted to spur her horse to press her heels into its flank and feel its hooves fly over the stones and soil to move through the flat landscape of the valley at speed. But she knew she must not, that her place was behind or next to him. If invited, never in front, so on and on they trotted. She sets down her cup, she lifts her chin, she turns her eyes onto her husband, Alfonso, Duke of Ferrara, and wonders what will happen next. So I've been talking to Maggie O'Farrell. We've been talking about her novel, The Marriage Portrait, which is out in the UK from Tinder Press. Maggie, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you for having me, Neil. It was, it was really great to talk. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.